Enjoy the game by Lionel Burney. Chapter 20 An Extra Pass. Brian Talbot was working in his garden one summer's afternoon, cutting the grass and neatly trimming the roses, when his wife Sandra came out and told him Graham Taylor was on the phone. At first he thought she was winding him up, but he put down the secateurs and went indoors. Talbot was the captain of Arsenal and the heartbeat of their side. Although he had heard whispers there were to be changes at Highbury that summer, he was not in a hurry to leave. Having just turned 32, he was approaching the end of his career, but he was still one of the fittest in the league and could outlast many of those ten years his junior. When Arsenal reached a pair of cup finals in 1980, they played 70 games during the season and Talbot didn't miss a match. While he was never going to beat many people in a race away from the lights, he covered an incredible amount of ground even for a midfield player, getting from wing to wing and box to box. Out of possession, he led by example with an excellent positional sense and he was more than eager in the tackle. But he wasn't just a grafter, he was a fine footballer, and when he had the ball he could be precise and patient. The way Talbot saw it, the object of the game was to deftly dismantle the opposition, particularly the better sides with the light touch of a master safecracker, not blow the doors off with a stick of dynamite. Talbot's stamina and work rate were exactly the sort of qualities Taylor admired, but the style of football Talbot favoured wasn't readily compatible with Watford's. Don Howe's Arsenal team was far from an elegant vintage. He liked the offside trap too much for that. The mid-1980s side was one that lived up to the finest traditions of the boring, boring Arsenal tag. At times, they could pass people to sleep. There was not a great deal of mutual affection between Taylor and Howe either. The Arsenal boss had been one of Watford's most vocal critics, suggesting that if everyone copied their direct style, it would set the English game back 20 years. At one of Watford's end-of-season shindigs at Bailey's, one of the sketches featured Steve Harrison reading a newspaper with the joke headline, Record Unemployment Figures, How Blames Taylor. Yet here was Taylor on the phone, asking the Arsenal captain if he'd consider joining Watford. I met Graham a week later, and he impressed me immensely, says Talbot. His attention to detail was incredible. He knew all about me, that I had four children, that I liked to drink, that I worked hard. He knew I was opinionated, but he still wanted to talk to me about signing for the team. I went to the meeting with an open mind, but I left thinking that I wanted to sign for him. Talbot still had a year to run on his contract at Arsenal. He was chairman of the Players' Union, the Professional Footballers' Association, so he knew exactly how things worked when it came to negotiating a contract and looking after his best interests. With a year left at Arsenal, Talbot knew he didn't have to go anywhere unless it suited him. Taylor made him an offer he couldn't refuse. He wanted to make me captain, but that wasn't a factor for me, says Talbot. If he'd offered the captaincy with half the wages, I wouldn't have come. That might not sound like the answer people want to hear, but it's the truth. As a 32-year-old professional with four children and a big mortgage, I was making a decision to look after my family. During their meeting, Talbot told Taylor what he wanted, thinking his demands would be too rich for Watford. 
I thought I was making it difficult for him, but there was no argument. He offered exactly what I was asking for, he says. It was a three-year contract with good wages, and there was only one answer I could give. Yes. I never told the players how much I was on. In fact, the only person I told was my wife, because I don't think it's anyone else's business. Whether it was the right deal for Watford Football Club at that time, I don't know. Put it this way, I was very surprised and very grateful. Talbot joined Watford for £150,000, a fairly modest transfer fee that disguised the full extent of the financial commitment the club was making. Although he hadn't required the armband for the sake of his ego, Talbot was appointed club captain. For Les Taylor, the new arrival spelled the end. Taylor was 28, almost four years younger than the man brought in to replace him, which was unusual. He'd been a regular in the centre of Watford's midfield since the second division days, and he was a favourite with the supporters, who loved his commitment, energy and tenaciousness, which more than compensated for the odd wayward pass or shot. But the knee injury he suffered in the summer of 1983 and the subsequent operation had taken its toll. Graham pulled me in before he signed Brian and told me that the cartilage operation had slowed me down. In hindsight, he was right, says Taylor. The rest of the players were concerned the team would miss Taylor's industry. When Brian came in, we all thought, blimey, who's going to do all the work, says Colin West, because Les used to run his socks off. The answer was that Brian was going to have to do it. I could run all day, so that didn't worry me, says Talbot. I wasn't quick over ten yards, but if you asked me to run round the track six times, I could do it. But we did some running, I can tell you. There were two sessions a day, four days a week, which I wasn't used to. Graham couldn't see anything wrong with running hard. He didn't see that you needed some rest. Today, people would totally disagree with those methods, but back then, if you said you were tired, it wasn't that you were tired, it was because you were weak-minded. I used to get home absolutely shattered and say to Sandra, I can't be doing much today. I've got to get ready for tomorrow. Sometimes we used to do a session on Saturday morning before a game too. I found that very difficult to start with. In the 12-mile cross-country runs, Talbot was always at the front with John Barnes, but when it came to the matches, he didn't slot in quite so comfortably. When they had first met, Taylor had given the impression he wanted Talbot to help evolve the team's style of play, but from the start... Talbot was concerned he was being asked to become a replica of Les Taylor. Graham liked to go from back to front, says Talbot. His view was that if you could get there with one pass, why take two? I knew what their game was all about because I'd played against Watford. It was non-stop. They turned you round and got you facing the wrong way. They were in your face and the ball kept going in behind you. It was extremely awkward, but the criticism they got at times was unfair. They didn't just kick it up the field and run after it like wild animals. They played the ball to bodies or into areas where bodies were arriving. If the ball was cleared, the midfield was pushing up to win it and the priority was to get it wide again. It was very well coordinated and they had it down to a tee. When they came up to the first division, they were the new kids on the block and they surprised the big teams, but after a few years people worked out that you could pass your way round them. I'm not being rude to Watford, but they didn't finish second again, did they? I think that by 1985 people had sussed them out. You could let them play the long ball because you knew where it was going. I'm not saying it was easy because you still had to beat them to the second ball and you had to work as hard as them all over the pitch, but if you kept the ball well, you could beat them. 
Alarm bells began to ring during the pre-season matches when Torbert realised he was being bypassed. The thing was, I had to change, but that's difficult at 32, he says. I was used to the full-back getting the ball and rolling it to me. Then I'd pass it out to the wing and get it back, then switch the play to the other side and back again. I like to be patient and look for the opportunities by stretching the opposition and keeping them guessing to a certain extent. But at Watford, the full-back got it and hit the centre-forward straight away and I was expected to run up the pitch and try to win the knockdowns. I thought we should try to fit in an extra pass and try to get the ball to Barnsley's feet more often. Graham preferred his way, and he had all his statistics and information to back it up. The detail of his work was second to none. He had been a phenomenal success, so why should an old pro coming into his club try to change it when the manager knows better? I know that now. But he wanted me to do what Pat Rice had done a few years earlier, and have an effect on the team, but it's very difficult to do that when the ball is going over your head and you're not getting the touches. The first game of the season was at White Hart Lane, against the Tottenham side still smarting from the 5-1 hiding Watford had given them in May. Spurs had signed Chris Waddle from Newcastle United during the summer and the winger was in blistering form, scoring twice in a 4-0 win. Watford was stunned and Taylor was not happy. Spurs were absolutely desperate to hammer us that day, says Colin West. I can remember Graham getting his point across fairly aggressively at times. He could chuck the teacups about a bit. And that was one of those days. We just didn't get going and that was something that really got him wound up. He could forgive your mistakes if you were putting it in, but we needed to really hit Tottenham that day and I don't think we did. It was exactly what I've been saying, says Torbert. The good teams could pass it round you, especially when we were away from home. That was a bad performance. We just couldn't get into the game. The ball was going over my head one way and being passed round me the other. Watford's away form was slow to improve. They didn't manage a victory in the league until a trip to Birmingham City in early December. However, at Vicarage Road they were excellent, as good as any of the top six teams in the country. At the start of the season they beat both Birmingham and Coventry 3-0 and West Brom 5-1 and didn't lose a home league match until Luton's visit in November. In the beginning, Torbert tried to impose himself on Watford's midfield but found it difficult when the rest of the team was on a different wavelength. Early in the season, Steve Harrison took him to one side after training. Steve said to me, Right, I'm going to be Nigel Callaghan and you're going to be Brian Talbot. Harrison emptied a bag of footballs and took up a position on the wing. I'm going to pass it to you and you're going to hook it into the channel, he told Talbot. But there's no one there, said Talbot. No, but on Saturday, Westy will be running into that space, so we're going to do 50 balls. We must have done about 45 minutes of this, says Talbot, just clipping it first time into the channel. You could do it in your sleep. Then he said to me, Right, that's what we want you to do on Saturday. Saturday came, the home match against Coventry City. Early in the game, the ball fell to Talbot. As you do when you're a midfield player, you instinctively want to look up to see what's on. There was no one running, so I knocked it across to Gibbsy, Nigel Gibbs, the fullback. I wanted him to play it to the centre-half, who then play it over to the left. But Gibbsy hit it straight up the line. All I heard from the bench was, Fucking hell, we told you about this on Thursday. Just knock it in the channel like we said. The next ball came to me, and I smashed it into the channel, but it went out for a goal kick. The next one went into the right area, but Westy wasn't there. The third one went off for a throw, so I shouted over to the bench, 
You're turning me into a Watford player now. Taylor shouted back. Watford players try to keep it on the fucking pitch, Brian. <laughs> I'm smiling about it now, but I think we were being treated like robots, and I do think players have got imagination, especially some of the players Graham had, people like John Barnes and Kenny Jackett. After six matches, the manager called Talbot into his office and said, The opposition is not the problem I've got. You're the problem I've got, and you're my captain. The issue wasn't that Talbot disliked or disrespected Taylor. He simply didn't share his view of how to play the game. My point was, if all you want me to do every time I get the ball is hook it into the channel, the opposition know I'm going to do that, he says. They know they've seen us play, I told him. You're not a surprise anymore. I said to Graham that if he carried on, we'd be mid-table and we shouldn't be. I thought if we switched the play every now and then, took the extra pass and surprised them, we would do better. But no, we were very rigid. Maybe I gave him an extra problem he didn't need. I wasn't disrespectful, I wasn't a rebel. I got on with my training and did my job and I worked hard. Sometimes he mentioned a bit much that I'd been an international and I'd played for a big club. The lads knew that already and I was a bit embarrassed when he said that because I was a team player and loved being one of the lads. I was never good enough to be an individual. Maybe he was justifying why Les wasn't playing. With respect to Les, who I later worked with at Oxford, he was a good worker, but he was not a good passer. I liked him as a man and as a player, but the club had got bigger. Les felt he could still do the job, but the manager didn't think he could. He stayed when he probably should have gone. He was competing for his place, fairly, not behind my back, and he was never a problem to me, but I could run more than him, I could keep the ball better, and I could score more. The crowd wasn't immediately appreciative of the qualities Talbot brought to the team. There were times when it felt like he was an unnecessary punctuation mark in an otherwise free-flowing passage, and there were calls from the fans for Les Taylor to be reinstated. Talbot picked up on the vibe, but he paid little attention. As long as the manager picked him for the team, he would do his best and ignore what others said. "'I remember when I first joined, I bought the Watford Observer,' he says. I hadn't bought a paper for years, but everyone at the club read it, so I thought I'd see what it was all about. The reporter analysed every game in the finest detail, which was fine, but I thought, well, I won't tell him what I'm thinking, and I won't read what he's thinking. He was entitled to his opinion, but how many games has he played? I left it to the manager to say whether or not I was doing well enough, and with respect, I don't think the manager was getting his opinions from the local paper. For the first time since their debut season in the First Division, Watford had got off to a good start and were comfortable in the middle of the table as winter began to close in, yet it still wasn't quite working out. Brian couldn't play the way Graham wanted him to play, says Les Taylor. He wasn't the same type as player as me, but Graham stuck with him, even though most of the crowd wanted me back. Graham had to prove a point because he could be stubborn. He brought me back for a League Cup game against QPR and we lost. First half things were going well, but then they scored and it went downhill. After that, I didn't get a look in. Graham might argue that certain players weren't doing as they were told, Talbot says. He would no doubt say that if his players had done exactly what he wanted, we'd have won more games. I couldn't adapt to the way he wanted me to do things. If the ball was coming to me on the bounce, he'd want me to hook it over my head without looking and then turn and run and try to win the second ball but I'd want to bring it under control, pass it to the full-back and build up from there. 
Maybe Graham was worried that if you passed the ball to the fullback, he might lose it. Perhaps that was because he was used to working with players who were not technically the best. If you played with George Burley or Viv Anderson or Kenny Sanson, as I had, you trusted them. I trusted Nigel Gibbs, but with respect, he was average on the ball. So I can see that Graham was trying to limit the possibility of making mistakes in dangerous areas. But he was asking me to change as a player, and I think that was a bit unfair on me. He knew who I was when he signed me. Looking back, perhaps we both should have given a little. Three months into the season, Talbot almost left. He could have let me go to Manchester United, but it probably would have looked bad to the directors and the supporters, he says. It would have been the perfect move for me because the PFA had an office in Manchester. I'd have only been the understudy to Brian Robson, but that would have been fine. Although he respected the manager, as chairman of the PFA, Talbot was used to having his say and accustomed to being listened to. If the lads were moaning about training and I agreed, I'd go to the manager and say, I think the training is too hard. And he'd say, get on with it, Brian. I'd say, fine, and tell the rest of the lads and that would be it. But the next training session would be harder because I'd gone in. He'd do it to show who was boss. And if there was more running to be done, I'd get right up to the front to show him I was happy to get on with it. I wasn't intimidated. There was a fear element at the club. They are frightened of him still, some of them. I didn't call him Graham then, but I would now. I think there are some of the lads would still call him boss or gaffer now. The rest of the lads took to me, I think. They saw I was honest. I didn't talk behind the manager's back. I'd say it to his face. I wouldn't say one thing to the players and another to the manager. John Barnes feels it was too late in Talbot's career for him to change. He was a very strong character and quite set in his ways, he says. He was used to doing things differently, but at Watford it was Graham's way or no way at all, and there was no point fighting it. I think some people found that quite difficult. It was fantastic that Watford were in a position where they could sign former international players, but Graham still wanted complete control over the team, and when you bring those players in, you can never be sure whether it's going to work. Talbot quickly became an influential figure, but sometimes Taylor felt he had too much to say. Brian always wanted to know what was going on, says John Ward. We'd say, oh, just get on with it, Brian, but he couldn't. He needed to know. One day Brian said he wanted to see the gaffer, so I told Graham and he said, Oh, not today, John. Look, when I finish training, keep them out for 20 minutes, and when you see me pull out of the car park, bring them in. So at the end of the session, Graham goes in and Brian said to me, Wardy, did you tell the boss I wanted to talk to him? Yes, Brian, I've told him. We're just going to do a bit of a warm down, said Ward. Ward spotted Taylor's car leaving, pulling away, and took the players in. Wardy, the gaffer's gone. I thought you told him I wanted a word, said Talbot. Oh, I can't believe that, Brian. I did tell him, but maybe something's cropped up. The league campaign was solid but not spectacular. Consistency was difficult to come by, so once again the FA Cup offered Watford the clearest shot at glory. The third round draw handed them a tricky tie at Coventry City, but Watford handled the ice and snow well, winning 3-1. I was being marked by Brian Kilcline says West. He had broken my foot before, so it was great to score two against him. After a one-all draw at Main Road against Manchester City in the fourth round, Watford were held again in the replay at Vicarage Road. At the end of extra time, the referee tossed a coin to decide on the venue for the second replay. Talbot lost the toss, meaning another trip to Manchester just three days later. People have written us off, says Steve Terry. 
We'd done pretty well to draw up there the first time, but after failing to win at home, people thought our best chance had gone. They had a wide player called Mark Lillis, who had given us a hard time. It was a big pitch at Manchester City, and the weather that winter had been bad, so it was even more of a challenge. Watford was superb that night, winning 3-1 to set up a fifth-round match with Berry, who were struggling to stay afloat in the third division. Again, the supporters were tempted to look ahead instead of concentrate on the present. The team almost came unstuck. Because of the bad weather, there had been almost a month between competitive matches, which perhaps explained the rusty performance. Berry scored a late equaliser to snatch a one-all draw, but Watford did not falter again, winning the replay 3-1 at Gig Lane. Because of postponements, Watford had played just five games in as many weeks, all of them in the FA Cup, which amplified the sense that the club's season hinged on the competition. However, the sixth-round draw was daunting, an away match at Anfield, a ground where they had never managed so much as a draw. Few gave Watford a chance of pulling off an upset, particularly when Liverpool began the game at a searing pace. In the opening ten minutes they created a flurry of chances, and Watford were in danger of slumping, punch-drunk, against the ropes. But for a series of inspired reaction saves from Tony Coton, they would have collapsed under the avalanche. It was just one of those days you sometimes have as a goalkeeper, he says. They came at us from the start, and quite early on I had to make three or four saves. We were on the back foot that quick, I thought, this is going to be one of those nights. We're either going to get absolutely battered, or I'm going to get lucky. I thought we'd probably lose it, but we defended very well, and I had a bit of luck with one or two. Everything else, I was just getting spot on. Towards the end, I thought we deserved to hold on because we'd been magnificent. Taylor had set the team up to contain Liverpool and hoped to create a chance on the break. He picked Lee Sinnott to play on the left-hand side of midfield, moving John Barnes into the middle to play just behind Colin West. Sinnott had been out of the side since December, when he had deputised at centre-half for John McClellan, who'd been injured. Now he was being asked to play in an unfamiliar position. I was brought in to defend against Mark Lawrenson, who was Liverpool's right-back, says Sinnott. I was tall and had pace, a bit like him, so my job was to stop him getting forward, which he liked to do. It was one of those games where we did go in with a game plan based on the opposition, which wasn't something Graham used to do very often. Usually, we were more concerned about what we were going to do. But to go to Liverpool and not concede when the Anfield crowd were willing them to score was quite an achievement. Indeed it was. Watford were one of only two teams to keep Liverpool out at Anfield that season. The other was Everton. As we came off the pitch, the Liverpool staff were congratulating me on a great performance, says Coton. The reply was not made all ticket, partly because there was less than a week between the two ties which made the logistics awkward, but also because Watford hoped for a big crowd that would create one of those special Vicarage Road nights. The weather had played havoc with the Cup's schedule, so the draw for the semi-final had already been made, giving Watford every reason to dream. Southampton were waiting for them, and that, on a neutral ground, was a winnable game. Supporters arrived early for the Liverpool match before the gates even opened. As they queued in the street, people kept on coming. With half an hour to go, the ground was almost full. The kick-off was put back to give everyone more time to get in, but there were some impatient ones who began to climb over the wall. Inside, the Vicarage Road Terrace was bursting at the seams. 
There were so many people behind the goal that they spilled over into the moat between the front of the terracing and the white perimeter wall. Every inch of space was taken, so some fans climbed up the floodlight pylons to get a better view. The attendance was given as 28,000, the stadium's official capacity, but as Nigel Gibbs says, that was the biggest crowd I ever played in front of at Vicarage Road, and more than 28,000 without a doubt. The atmosphere was intense because the fans sensed Liverpool were there for the taking and a winnable semi-final tie was on the cards. At the start of the second half, John Barnes scored with a brilliant curling free kick from just outside the area to put Watford ahead. Now it became a matter of summoning the same courage and concentration they'd shown at Anfield. As the second half wore on, Liverpool attacked in waves and the nervousness on the terraces began to transmit itself to the team who had little option but to try to soak up the pressure. They came heartbreakingly close. With just four minutes to go, Jan Mulby played the ball between Watford central defenders for Ian Rush to chase. It was Liverpool's trademark pass, and it always created danger. Although the ball was heading away from goal, it split the defence in half and put the goalkeeper in two minds. Should he stay, or should he rush out? I do think now, why did I come for that ball, says Coton. I genuinely thought I could get it. Rush was running away at an angle towards the goal. There wasn't any threat of him scoring from there, but I thought I could get the ball cleanly. Coton died for the ball, his arm outstretched, and Rush went over, as he always did. Coton swears he did not bring him down, that it was not a foul. Roger Milford, the referee who had sent off Wilf Rostron at Luton, denying him a place in the FA Cup final, pointed to the penalty spot. It was never a penalty, says Graham Taylor. Ian Rush laughs about it now. Tony made no contact. Milford was well behind. If anyone should have given it, the linesman should, but Milford's about twenty yards away. I very rarely complain about referees, but we got two decisions from him that went badly against us. Milford is adamant he made the right decision. No, it bloody well wasn't controversial, he says with his Bristolian twang. People say that was a turning point in the game, but it wasn't me who made it a turning point. I gave the decision the way I saw it. You have to be straight down the middle, unbiased, and give what you think you see. I stress what you think you see. I saw that as a penalty, and in no way did I ever make a decision that I thought was wrong. That's the nature of refereeing. I am sure Tony Coton would say he didn't touch him, but I am just as sure Ian Rush would say it was a penalty. I'm not saying one is a liar and the other isn't, but players say it how they see it as well. Whether the forward was going away from the goal or not isn't the point. It was a foul. A semi-final place could still have been Watford's. Coton faced Mulby, the Danish midfielder, who was unerringly deadly from the penalty spot. It was always going to be difficult because he was one of the best, because he could go either side, says Coton. He didn't always go to his left or right like some, so you couldn't read him. He would side-foot the ball, not blast it. You just didn't know which way he was going to go. When he started his run-up, I still couldn't tell. So you have to take a guess, otherwise he's going to put it in the net without you moving. I looked him in the eyes, but he didn't give anything away. As soon as I start to go one way, he put it the other side. After that, Steve Harrison came running round to the back of the goal and said, Hey, chin up, we're here because of the saves you made at Anfield. It didn't make it any better. It was absolutely gutting, because I knew I hadn't fouled Rush. The late goal, a penalty so typical of Liverpool in their pomp, was a searing blow to the solar plexus. Watford had another 30 minutes in which to press for a winner, 
but instead they were bent double, winded by what they saw as not just a late goal, but an unfair one. Everyone in the ground now feared the worst. Liverpool were the best in the country at this sort of late comeback. They would get themselves off the hook and then expect to go on to win. Extra time would be as severe a test of Watford's resilience as they had ever faced. Graham was telling us we had done enough to win the game and that we could do it again, but I looked around and everyone was knackered, said Steve Terry. I was exhausted physically and mentally. We'd been concentrating so hard and fighting for every ball we were completely drained in extra time. If it was just about effort, there's no doubt we deserved to hold on, but Liverpool kept going and going, and in the end they wore us down. There was a sense of inevitability about Liverpool's second, scored by Rush, of course. They had chance after chance, says Coton. We were out on our feet, and we were just trying to hold them off, but the ball was just coming back at us the whole time. Out of the cup, but comfortably clear of the relegation zone, the end of the season was devoid of the drama of previous years. There was no race to Europe, no Wembley. Except for a memorable double at Easter, the campaign fizzled out. The home match against Arsenal on Boxing Day had been postponed because of the weather and rearranged for Tuesday, April the 1st. By coincidence, this was the day after the Hornets were due to travel to Highbury, meaning there was a double header against the Gunners. Watford won both games, 2-0 away and 3-0 at home. I say to players now that we played Arsenal home and away on consecutive days and beat them 5-0 on aggregate and they just don't believe me, says Gibbs. For a start, no one can get their heads around the idea of a top team playing two days in a row. At Vicarage Road, Watford rubbed in their superiority. I think the Arsenal lads have been out for a few drinks the night before because they were all over the place, says Steve Terry. We were the worst team to play against if you still had a bit of a hangover. After a 4-1 win against Newcastle, which was notable for Nigel Gibbs's first senior goal, the season slowed to an anticlimactic finish, with a disappointing run of home matches. There were two nil defeats to Everton and West Ham, and one all draws with Nottingham Forest, Southampton and Manchester United. For the first time since the club's arrival in the top flight, the home league attendance dropped below 12,000. The theme of Graham Taylor's programme notes that spring sounded a warning for the club and its supporters not to become complacent. At the club's annual general meeting in 1985, Taylor had passed round his fourth division championship medal, awarded to him in 1977. Then he stood up and explained that he was wearing the suit, shoes, shirt, socks and even underpants he had worn on FA Cup final day in 1984. He was trying to remind people how much had been achieved and how their status should not be taken for granted. Watford had no divine right to play in the First Division or the latter stages of the Cups. They were no more established as a top-flight club than those which had risen through the divisions only to sink back down again. Victories over the likes of Liverpool, Arsenal and Manchester United were to be savoured and cherished, not expected. Draws and defeats against the less glamorous sides should not be greeted with grumbles and groans. Watford's supporters were not used to mid-table security. That first incredible season in the top division had set the benchmark, but it was impossible to expect that every year. On the final day of the season, Watford won 5-1 at Chelsea's Stamford Bridge on a bank holiday Monday afternoon. There were just over 12,000 people there to see it. Few Watford fans made the journey. Before the season started, 
Taylor went on record to say he felt the squad was capable of breaking into the top six. Brian Talbot agreed. We had a very good team, he says, but we finished halfway up the league, which I think proves that organisation will only get you so far. We had a very good home record, but we were not great away, and that tells another side of the story. Against the best teams, particularly away from home, we needed to show a bit more craft. We had better players than people thought. Everyone knew about John Barnes, who was becoming an international, but Coton was a quality goalkeeper. Gibsey was incredibly consistent and competitive. McClelland was a lot better than people gave him credit for, and Kenny Jackett was one of the most underrated players in the country. Up front we had Colin West, who was the perfect target man, and Luther, who ran people ragged. It made me laugh when people called him Luther Missit, because he scored goals and made chances, and when he missed one he kept on going. Even when he wasn't at his best, he was dangerous. He was a pro. He never pulled out of a game with niggling injuries. When you look back at your career, you want to say all nice things, that everything was rosy. In terms of the football, I felt we were getting it wrong because we should have been challenging the bigger teams, but as a club, Watford was lovely. It was like a family, and everyone was so nice. As a bloke, the manager was first class. Coming to Watford gave me a new perspective on football. We had to wash our own kit and clean our own boots and pay for our own lunch or bring a packed lunch, as I did. We didn't do that at Ipswich or Arsenal, but it gave the young players a set of values they take with them. I was chairman of the PFA, and when I told people I cleaned my boots and washed my kit every day, they couldn't believe it, but that was fine by me. If you're a carpenter, you bring your tools in every day and you keep them clean and in good condition. I had never seen that before, but I thought it was a good thing. I'd been an apprentice at Ipswich, and I'd seen people chuck their dirty kit on the dressing room floor for the kit man to pick up. But he's not a slave. He's good enough to wash the kit, so he shouldn't have to pick it up off the floor. Having said that, I told Graham that if he wanted us to train twice a day, he should give us four sets of kit instead of three. It's a lot of work for my wife to turn around two sets of kit every day, plus all the family laundry. She's not a slave either. He said I was being flashed because I was from Arsenal, but I was right and eventually he gave us an extra set. Graham made it a lovely club, and the thing I took from it was that he had the same principles in the first division that he'd held in the fourth division. It was a family-orientated place. I'll never forget one day, we were going on our 12-mile cross-country run, and he said we'd walk the first couple of miles to warm up. Well, we walked through Casbury Park, and ended up at his house, where Rita had laid on tea and cakes. Who'd do that? Things like that made the place special. When I went into management, I used a lot of his techniques, discipline, organisation, fitness work. I've still got a lot of his charts, marking the number of shots and crosses we had, and when I was with Rushton, I used the same approach. It works very well with lower division players. I was an experienced player in 1985, but I was still looking at it from a player's perspective. I'd not been a manager. Asking me now, maybe Graham was right. He had to get the best results he could for the football club, and he did it the way he felt was right. He'd taken them through the divisions and finished as runners-up. Yes, he had Elton John's money, but I don't care how much you've got. You've still got to get results. I have Max Griggs's money at Rushton and Diamonds, and I can tell you it is very difficult to keep winning football matches. By the time the players reported back for pre-season training in July 1986, Brian Torbert knew the manager wanted to move him on. But there was a snag. Torbert had signed for three years and he wasn't going to budge unless the terms were right. 
I missed one league game all season, he says. I hadn't been injured. I was never late for training. But it hadn't worked out how we'd hoped, and Graham wanted to try something else. There was a slight problem because my financial arrangement was geared to me staying three years. Were they going to get their money's worth after one year? No way. I hadn't asked for a transfer, and the club was committed to paying certain things that were in my contract, and I was going to get every penny by hook or by crook. Taylor rang Talbot to talk about him leaving, and he asked, How much are you willing to forego? Talbot replied, Not one penny. I'll be in for training, on time every day. I'll work hard and be professional. Put me in the first team or the reserves, and I'll do my best. If you don't pick me, I'll watch from the stands. I'll carry the bags, lay out the cones, whatever you want, it's fine, no problem. I'll travel wherever you want. I'll do whatever you want. And I'll do it this season and the season after. And I'll see out my time. I knew Graham had a problem because he couldn't have one of his top earners in the reserves, Talbot said. Watford eventually took a loss on their captain, selling him to Stoke City for £25,000. Graham said to me, We paid you more than we should for that first year. And my response was, Well, that's not my problem. Anyway, I said to my wife that he got his money's worth because I did three years running in one. I left on good terms and wished him all the best. Graham Taylor is a very clever man. If something wasn't working, he would look at it, figure out what was going wrong and change it. Maybe when I left he thought, well, I've lost a decent bloke there, he wasn't all bad, so maybe I do need to alter things a bit. Perhaps I paved the way for Kevin Richardson to go in there and have a bit more freedom than I'd been allowed. End of chapter 20 Next time, Callie A portrait of an icon One of the most mercurial homegrown talents in the club's history (laughs) 